This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal. Welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to hear from you. You're not, I'm not really hearing from you. Great to see you. I'm not really seeing you either. Great for you to be here. I'm really happy to get this week started because we have a great show tonight. I mentioned the paranormal in the intro, and uh, sometimes we circle around and we kind of get really close to our roots and really close to home. And that's what we're going to do tonight in the first hour of the program. It's, it's uh, going to be National Ghost Hunting Day soon. When I say soon, I think it's like six weeks out, September. And the uh, founder of that day, Maria Schmidt, will be with us at talking about why she founded National Ghost Hunters or Ghost Hunting Day, what it's about, what the purpose is, and how you can participate. There are places all over the world, in fact, that will be honoring it and allowing you to come a ghost hunt in one fashion or another. And uh, that'll be the, the conversation for the first hour of the program. In the second hour, we'll be talking with Jay Dyer. Jay is a uh, an author, a philosopher, and a film analyst. And we'll talk about his book series called Esoteric Hollywood and the symbolism that's hidden in popular films. That'll also be a very, very interesting discussion. So a lot of great stuff tonight for you. We're excited about that. Um, looking ahead in the week, because... Great shows all week long. Hand it to uh, Orion and Slick Eddie for putting this week together. John Zeta will be with us tomorrow night. He is a journalist. He'll talk about his new book called In the Valley of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch, in which he will uh, detail his research in the Great Bear Rainforest looking for Sasquatch. And then Wednesday night's program, Rick Shapiro will be here. He's a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. He's got a book out called Hope Never Dies, in which he relates stories of people who beat the odds and survived cancer. That'll be a very inspiring show. I'm looking forward to that. And then Thursday night, returning guest, Bernie Taylor. Bernie's been with us a few times. We love having him on the show. He's a naturalist and an author, and he'll be talking about the question and providing answers to the question, are we alone in the cosmos? And he'll do it by examining nature's timekeeping systems. So a lot of great stuff coming up this week on Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for joining us all week long. I'll say that in advance. And also, while you're uh, flipping around on your computer or your smartphone, browsing the web, whatever you're doing, swing by Facebook. Give us a like there at Beyond Reality Radio and also my page, JVJ Paranormal. JV Johnson or just JVJ Paranormal is an easy way to find it. And then also YouTube is waiting for you to swing by and subscribe to the J.V. Johnson YouTube channel because that's where we stream the show live. We also have an archive of programs there, about 300 back episodes of Beyond Reality Radio are archived there, plus some special content. It's a great place to uh, to um, check out some of our um, older interviews, some good shows back there. Uh, subscribe to it. Click the bell notification icon so you know when we either stream live or upload new content. It's very, very simple. So because we have a couple of guests on tonight's show, we're going to get started right away. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Great show ahead. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Coming up in the second hour of the program, we'll be talking about esoteric Hollywood with Jay Dyer. That's in the second hour. But in the first hour, we're going to be talking about our roots a little bit, because as you know, both Jason and I come from ghost hunting roots. And uh, our guest in this first hour is Maria Schmidt, who is the founder of National Ghost Hunting Day. Maria, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Well, thank you for having me on. It's such a pleasure. Well, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, the website, by the way, is nationalghosthuntingday.com. How did you personally first become interested in uh, paranormal topics and ghost hunting specifically? 
well, I'm a registered nurse, and you can talk to any registered nurse that deals with death and dying, which is practically everything we do, and they will have some kind of an experience. So I came in with a clinical perspective. Then my husband um, started operating one of the most haunted inns in Southeast Florida, which is a Seven Sisters Inn in Ocala, Florida. And um, that's when I really started saying, oh, my gosh, this is true. You know, we had experiences every single day. Um, And it was a beautiful, beautiful Victorian 1885 inn, but it's just without failure. They weren't grotesque hauntings. They were mild and almost sweet hauntings, but they happened almost, almost on a daily basis. And that's when, you know, being involved in in lodging and hospitality, and about 50% of the people that came out to see us wanted to have a, a fabulous um, get a romantic getaway, and the other half wanted to experience the haunting. We were on Ghost Hunters in 2008, so that legend follow, followed us, and people looked this, looked this up, and, and there was a lot of intrigue about the mystery. And what we found in with these folks that were coming in, they weren't really, they weren't really interested in in the the hardcore paranormal. They just wanted to experience a mystery. They want to experience something that is supernatural um, that they were not safe doing anywhere else. So that that was the, the core of how we got enticed into doing something a little bit broader, a little bit bigger. I want to ask you about your uh, healthcare work as a registered nurse. You said something to the effect of uh, all the registers, anybody who might be a registered nurse or works in that field has had some kind of an experience at one point or another. It seems that based on what we get here on the program as far as guests and book submissions, that more and more healthcare workers are coming forward and they're more um, willing to tell some of these stories. There seems to have been a change in attitude. It's, I think at one point it may have been a bit taboo, but it seems to be more acceptable for particularly healthcare workers to tell their stories. Yeah, we're getting a little bit, I think, through, um, through the media. We're giving a little bit more permission for folks to come out of the closet, of the, of the ghost hunting closet, and say, yes, I did have an experience. I can't explain it. I don't know why, you know, how it happened, but I had an experience. It could be a, they witnessed um, a, a returning back to life experience or, they, or right before they die, an extraordinary experience. So they, they witness the relationship between death and the living almost on a daily basis. Um, of course, there's a, the spooky moments that we've all had working in, you know, in in environments that that attract the haunted, you know, where people spent their last lives. I was in long-term care working with Alzheimer's yeah. disease, and I can write a book about the experiences I had with them because are these are these are, were, these are these are yeah, um, these? No, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Are these a moment of death type experiences that you you had? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've had, you know, we we there was a small facility that we had, and we had like I mentioned, took care of Alzheimer's dementia patients. And they tend to have to let go of that, uh, what I call a super ego. They, they work more on an, on instinct, and um, they don't have any defense mechanisms. So they are able to express death and dying a lot more liberally than others that, that contain it. Um, that they have their senses. I've had some. Um, I've they, had some experience yes. with some uh, Alzheimer's patients as well, uh, family yes. members, in fact. And I know yes. that toward the end of life for them, they start having visions. Uh, some people yes. would say it's it's the mind playing tricks on them. Um, other people say no, these are in fact either angels or other uh, other deceased loved ones coming to greet them or calm them or ease them. What do you think is going on? It, it's just like I mentioned they. Persons with cognitive disorders, they're not able to, um, they don't have the defense mechanisms. They don't have the, the judgment to hold back. So they're pretty much open books. They're almost like animals. They react, and I mean that in a, in a respectful way, but they react more uh, without inhibitions. So because of that, they don't have any, you know, what we would normally temper visions with or, you know, or not invite 
um, that experience um, because we have those restrictions. We have those defense mechanisms. I truly believe that's what's going on. And also, they deteriorate very slowly. And I'm sure you've seen that with yeah. Alzheimer's disease. That's right. And when they deteriorate, I, I firmly believe, and I wish I had the resources to do a study on this, that the, the spirit leaves the body a lot sooner than the body leaves our you know, mortality. Um, when you say, when you say I, a lot so- sooner, Maria, do you mean like days or hours or minutes? I've seen it in, in variable time, but not minutes, um, sometimes hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. Wow. It just depends on the person. But I'll see visible signs that they're not, they're hollow. It's almost like they don't have a spirit. Right. Or they look at something in the room as if it's their, their self. I had an experience with them with a medical, um, uh, a medical colleague. She's a, um, master's prepared social worker and she had the gift of, um, of seeing spirit. She walked into her home one day in, in central Florida and saw her mother there. And her mother had late stages of Alzheimer's disease. And the first thing she thought about was mom passed. Right. Mom lived about two hours away down in South Florida. And she called the house and she said, no, your mother is quite, doing quite well. And so she actually saw her mother's spirit. Wow. And so I'm thinking that they have, they don't have those restrictions. They don't have those holdbacks to stay within their, their body, within their core. Um, it's just an interesting experience. And, I, and I'm sure that there's a lot that we can, you know, discover. But I think there, there has been some inhibitions of, of restricting us as professionals to not look at the supernatural as a possibility as part of the holistic care. Nurses for, as a segment, as an industry of themselves, we're trained to be holistic um, minded, body, mind, and spirit. So we always take into account the possibility of the spirit having a, a, a higher um, hierarchy than we, than the medical professions, um, like providers, physicians, et cetera, tend to give credit for. So I think that's why nurses are a little bit more open. They, they also have the connectivity to their patients that, um, that I think uh, promotes that kind of experience um, with their patients. Since so much of um, this type of activity takes place in hospitals, do you think that uh, translates into hospitals being more haunted than maybe other locations? You know, it's hard to say. Um, what, what are they haunted by? The, the patients that die there? Are they haunted by maybe the nurses that live, that work there for twenty five years? Or both? You know, it's it's it, there's so many variables there. There's so many people that have both gone through those walls, through those spaces. It's hard to say. You know, I'm not a master of you know, where do, where do ghosts like to, you know, go after they die? You know, I, I know I'm just using logic. If I was, you know, if I were to return back after I died, would I want to go where I was, you know, where I died? And I don't think the answer is yes. I think I would rather go to where I lived. Yeah. Full experiences. Or where your so, loved ones were or something, you know, where happy exactly. memories might be. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those memories in, in hospitals pre- pre-death are not very pleasant memories for patients and family members alike. So I, I would think that'd be the last place you'd want to spend a great deal of time. Yeah. As opposed to those, maybe the long-term care facilities that they spent their last five, the average long-term care uh, residents stays in a facility about five to eight years. So is it that they're returning back to their place where they were cared for, where they were fed, right. where they were the most vulnerable, where they developed relationships? I guess it just depends on, you know, the situation, whether they're just to die or whether we're just there as a long-term process. So, you know, yeah, Maria, it's, do you, do you, it's no different. Do you consider, do you consider yourself a ghost hunter? I don't know. I consider myself a ghost hunter collector. Um, you know, I, I've never wanted to join a team or I, do I participate in investigations? Yeah. Um, but I do that more of, as a as a as a delight more than you know something I do on a on a regular basis. Um, but what I found 
that was needed or was lacked in our in our industry is that all those that are involved, or I should call them the stakeholders of the paranormal field, are not. They don't collaborate. They don't work together. They don't experience together. They don't move the industry forward together, which is what's needed. And they're very, it's very segmented. I noticed when I was at the Seven Sisters Inn that paranormal investigators were very different than the metaphysical workers. And I would bring in metaphysical workers for, I don't know, people that had an interest in the metaphysical world. Um, and they had no interest in ghost hunting. All they wanted to do is speak to spirit, speak to their own spirit. So, you know, there's a lot of variables between all those stakeholders in our field. Um, and I felt like perhaps that was the reason we put the world's largest ghost hunt together. Because it does collaborate. It does, yeah, I don't want to use the word unity because I don't think unity is a, the proper word. We all have different goals. And when you have different goals, the best word that you can use is collaborate um, so that we can help each other and become a little bit more and move the, the industry up forward a little bit better. We know that... Um paranormal reality television has brought ghost hunting into the living room where it may not have been prior to that. And that, that evolution started around 2003, 2004. Uh, we only have about 30 seconds here. We have to jump to break, but do you think that the introduction of paranormal reality television is what started to create some of these, I guess what we'll call uh, jealousies or whatever it is that has created, created the disunity in the paranormal community? You know, I think that's a human factor. I don't believe it's, it's something that, was inspired by that. In fact, I believe what it did was create an appetite for um, for getting out there and finding the answers. When did you decide to launch National Ghost Hunting Day? Well, it's an excellent question because it's something that doesn't happen too often. But um, my husband and I decided to um, start a company called Haunted Journeys. And that was after we realized that Again, we needed to facilitate the discovery of going and visiting um, places that are haunted around the nation, et cetera, um, and to provide almost like a, oh, I would say like a Yelp for the haunted. And so as we did that, we said, well, what can we do to give it attention that it's going to happen, that we're doing this and we're putting these resources in? And it says, well, why don't we why don't we launch off the National Ghost Hunting Day? Certainly there's a day for that. And sure enough, we looked and there wasn't. And after we did a little research, um, we then were motivated to actually apply for it and um, to the National Calendar um, Association. And um, they weren't very encouraging. They said, well, we get about 100 um, requests per day oh, <laughs> on national days, like, National Hot Dog Day. I know. I've, I've, been, national, I've been petitioning yeah. for National JV Day for a very, very long time, and I just keep getting have told you, no. <laughs> have you rejected a few times <laughs> on that one? I've been rejected a whole bunch of times, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I'll give a good word for you. Thank you. Uh, we got accepted. Wow. And, and I think it was the uniqueness of, of what it was and that it was truly missing. And then they said, well, what can we do to make national ghost hunting to represent our intent? which, again, is the co collaboration of all the stakeholders within the haunted industry. And we thought about the world's largest ghost hunt. Actually, it was a national, uh, the largest um, ghost hunt in, in America. And I spoke to a friend, um, I'm sure he's a common friend, Brian, Brian Cano from Haunted Collection. Sure, no, Brian well, yeah. And, yeah, and, you know, he said, Maria, why do you stop in America? Let's do the whole world. And so that's what we did. We brought in resources from Australia and, and Europe, et cetera. So it did become an international um, event, and that was in 2016. We gathered about 50 teams around the world in five countries. In year two, we gathered about 90 teams in, I think it was eight countries. And then in last year. Um, in 2018, we gathered 150 locations and teams among, um, among 11 countries, including um, all, the, all the continents except Antarctica. 
So we were very successful. But I felt for 2017 and 2019, excuse me, we're going to have a different tempo. And we're going to scale it down a little bit so that it becomes a little bit more purposeful. Sometimes, and I'm sure you know what I'm I'm speaking of, sometimes when you get too big, you lose sight of what you're doing things for. And um, and so this year, I think we're going to go ahead and scale it down back to 100 um, and, and do an incredible dynamic job with it so so what is the what, what is involved you say you know these these uh, haunted locations participated what, what do they have to do to participate well all they have to do is, is register um this year we've um we've asked for a little donation for a fee um just because it takes a lot a lot of um um funds to take off something like this but essentially all they do is register um they commit to working together um, we prepare. This thing does not have, the preparation doesn't start two weeks in advance or even a week before. It starts months before. We start preparing them sure. on, the, on what we're going to do, the format, what we're going to do, because it, again, we're counting on the use of collective consciousness when we do this. So when they and participate, this, when, mm-hmm. a, when a location participates, they register with you, uh, they're now a yes. participant in National Ghost Hunting Day, and what do they offer people who come to their location on National Ghost Hunting Day. Is there something special going on? Yeah, there's a, the ghost hunt. So there's a simultaneous ghost hunt. This year, we're, we were pretty tight the first three years. We said it has to happen between 10 p.m. Eastern time and midnight and for two hours, no matter where you are in the world. It's going to be simultaneous, right at 2 o'clock, shotgun start. Gotcha. And that became very difficult because at 10 o'clock at night, it's o'clock in the morning in Europe. Right. It's seven o'clock in the morning in India, and it's um, four o'clock the next day in Australia. So, you know, and that's that's forgivable. But when ghost hunting at seven o'clock in the morning is tough in in Asia, and uh, and the Europeans have a hard time trying to find locations that would be open essentially all night long for them to stay there until 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning. So um, this year what we said and what we noticed, and this is what becomes really, really interesting, J.B., is that no matter what time you start, the collective consciousness, the energy, the buildup in communication with the dead happens not at 10 o'clock shotgun start. It starts happening days before. They start getting ready. And there's an escalation of activity um, that is experienced with all these teams that come back with stories and say, oh, my gosh, this is happening. This is going on. So they're feeling almost like a surge of energy um, that contributes to the dynamic properties of that day. So it's not that the spirits are there holding a time clock and say, okay, they're going to start now. We can start, you know. That's not how they work. So, um, in fact, one of our best evidence, and this happened at the um, Wesby Abbey in England last year, they started because they they had no choice. They started at 8 8 p.m. their time, which would have been around 2 o'clock in the afternoon for us. And they got two magnificent um, images of apparitions. And one of them um, hit the, um, I don't know if you've seen it, I'm sure you have, Um, it was two phantoms embracing each other. Mm. And that happened at the Abbey at 2 o'clock our time, eight hours before we did the shotgun start. So, again, a lot of, you know, evidence is felt throughout the day, um, and we're just going to go ahead and take opportunity to make it a little bit more feasible for our teams to, to you know, yeah, you talked about uh, sure. You mm-hmm. talked about uh, collaboration and unity within the paranormal community. Uh, yes. I'll ask you the question, but I think I know the answer. What's the objective of National Ghost Hunting Day? Well, the very first objective, which is dear to my heart, is historic preservation. So when we talked about these teams gathering and opening up um, tickets for the for the public to come in and witness and be part of this experience. They're raising monies for these um hundred percent of that money that's collected um for those for that particular event and that particular haunted location is kept by the by the property. So we raised close to I think there was an estimate of about twenty thousand dollars last year, which doesn't seem like a whole lot, but heck, you know, it's it's more than what we didn't have. 
And, um, and so, um, you know, that's our first purpose is historic preservation. And we're trying to use the vehicle of the supernatural as a, to prove to the world that this, this is, can be a viable fundraising opportunity for these historic pro- properties. And we see this, you know, we've just seen this JV all over the, you know, they're old jails and old silence that would normally would be demolished um, under the wrecking ball if they yeah. weren't supported by the enthusiasm of um, of the general public that comes out and experience the paranormal within it. So we're trying to, that's our first focus. Our second, of course, is a collaboration of, of the stakeholders within the paranormal, not just, the, not just the ghost hunters and the property owners, but also the community, the enthusiasts. The ones that are, oh, you know, the curious, you know, they're just wondering what it is. And our third, which leads to the third goal, is to break down the barrier uh, with public education that it, that ghost hunting or the paranormal investigation or the world of the supernatural is is not should not be a negative taboo, as you mentioned. It's you know it should be something that we need to experience and that we need to spend a little bit more attention and scientific um, investment with. Um, We haven't mentioned the date yet. September 28th is National Ghost Hunting Day. Um, A question I had written down, and I love the way you answered the last question because it ties right into this, and I was going to ask you, is this more about the history of a location, the haunting of a location, or a combination of both? It's absolutely a combination. Um, one of the slogans that we use with National Ghost Hunting Day and as well as with Honda Journeys is is um, a haunting is history wanting to be heard. And it absolutely puts it all together. And um, we find that there is a lot of historical reference when, when the when the evidence comes back from different sites and they do they do bring back the evidence um, that we gather. Um, but we also know that it's not just the the history of that place that's represented, but it's also the relationships of the people that are part of it. Um, we noticed last year, especially, there were a lot of um, occasions where in different areas, um, certain folks got an incredible experience of talking to their loved ones that they had never done before. And we all contribute that to the escalated, collective consciousness energy that comes out from this day. Um, we do work every year with a Cinco Research Foundation out of um, New Mexico. It's headed off, or at least the associate director is Brian J. Williams. He helps us by collecting um, data with random number generators. I'm sure you've heard of what RNGs are about. And which is basically is measuring the the probability of a, of a coin toss to milliseconds, and he's noted in his studies that um, when there are gatherings like a Super Bowl, everyone is paying attention to that Super Bowl, or you know a presidential debate, or a, a catastrophe that happened, you know, um, some earthquake, and the, the whole world is focusing towards that particular event that particular situation, there is an increase um, of, of the probability of the RNG um, getting out of norm. So the normal random number generator, the number of the flip coin, you know, heads or tails, 50-50, right? 50% chance of yeah. heads and 50% head of, of tails. Well, with this collected root consciousness forms with these gatherings, there's a deviation. So it may be 55-45. It, it breaks the, RN, the normal logic be, between, you know, the, the, the randomness of the, of, of the coin toss. Well, he noticed, and when he did, the, the, did this with us for the first three years, that we did create a deviation in RNGs with the collective consciousness on National Ghost Hunting Day. Oh, wow. It's a wonderful experiment, and it's not real scientific, but it certainly proves that when we communicate 
to hear it at the very same time, you know, raising that that level frequency, um, it does have an impact. And um, so, yes, and when we do our due diligence, we measure our change report. You know, you know, I'm a clinician, so I have to have raw data. You know, um, number of the, the sensations that you felt as opposed to your normal investigation, et cetera. And overall, there is a between a 60 to 70% enhanced experience of the, um, of, of what, what, you know, the evidence that they capture or they felt or they, um, were able to personally experience. Um, so it, it does have an impact. It's definitely, um, something that we, and I'll call myself as an investigator leader, um, that we look forward to every year because the, the amount of, I should say, the experience of the ghost hunting is so much more satisfying and greater on, on this particular day due to collective consciousness. Uh, Marie, you said there's a whole bunch of places that are participating. We've only got a couple minutes left with you. What are a couple of your favorite uh, places in the United States that you would point out for people? Well, we, it's so hard to, you know, I'm sure all my, 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 my folks are listening right now, so I, I don't want to play favorites right now. Right. I don't think it would be fair. Um, but I do have folks that come year after year, and some are celebrating their fourth year with me, and I do want to bring salute to those. Um, um, we have a, locations in Florida, which are, that's actually where I, I I lived when I started this, so very loyal and very noble to this. Um, Australia has been phenomenal. I mean, I have four teams out there that are here. They were with me since day one, and they just keep coming back, et cetera. Um, Europe also has some of the most wonderful folks that are, are just it contributes so much to our cause and, and the knowledge, et cetera, of, of what we stand for. Um, but what we bring together, and we, we do have a, a forum that we all share and collaborate with months before we, we do this, um, that we exchange our philosophies and our cultural differences between all the different places. And that is so important. Yeah. Americans have a different view of, of how we ghost hunt as opposed to the ones in Europe. The Europe's the, Euro, the Europeans whip out their Ouija board and they start. That's how they communicate. That is normal for them to do. Um, seances are much more predominant in in Australia um, because of the Victoria era, um, the Victorian era um, influence, I should say, um, from England. So you know every single has their own contributions, their own influence, their own cultural diversity, which makes this so unique. Now you have um, you so, have you have a list of uh, locations on the website, right? I do, I do. We have a list. Um, it, it's by alphabetical list as well as a map, okay. so you can go in there and pick up the folks. That, and I, I also want to make sure that that everybody realize that even if you're not able to participate personally and support these locations around the world, um, we're going to be on live stream. So we are um, hooking up with a company um, get, uh, that will be allowing us to have a, um, a big forum um, where people can just select what um, what live stream they want to go, so, you know, so, go, and go into. I'm sure mm-hmm. there'll be a link on the website for that. Absolutely. Okay, so the Absolutely. web the website is nationalghosthuntingday.com, and in the f- yes. 15 seconds I've got left with you, how do you uh, want people to honor this day? With respect, um, with um, with a passion to do everything right for, again, the historical preservation of all these wonderful properties, for the collaboration of our industry, and for the public education that um, we need to keep um, folks alert to. Maria, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, thank you again to Maria Schmidt for joining us in the first hour of the program. We had to end the uh, the interview quickly. I just want to make sure everyone got that 
website. It's nationalghosthuntingday.com, and that's where the list of locations that are participating. The date is September 28th this year, National Ghost Hunting Day. Um, and in the second hour of the program, we're going to be talking about esoteric Hollywood with Jay Dyer. He is an author, a philosopher, and a film analyst. And his book is called Esoteric Hollywood. We'll get him on the program in just a few moments. Looking ahead in the week, tomorrow night, John Zeta will be with us. John is a journalist. We'll be talking about his new book, In the Valley of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. And then Wednesday, we've got Rick Shapiro here. Rick is a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. He's written a book called Hope Never Dies, which relates stories of people who beat the odds and survived cancer. I'm hoping that's going to be very, very inspirational for people because um, I'm pretty confident saying that cancer has touched every one of our lives in one way or another. Thursday night, Bernie Taylor, a returning guest, he's been on a couple times before, will be with us to talk about the question, are we alone in the cosmos? He can help us answer that question by examining nature's timekeeping systems. That'll be Bernie Taylor, Thursday night on the program. A reminder to swing by Facebook and like us on Facebook at Beyond Reality Radio. Also, my Facebook page, which is found by just uh, at JVJ Paranormal, or you can search for JV Johnson. Either way, it should get you there. Give that a like. And also, YouTube is a great place to go. If you have trouble uh, getting the program on a local radio station, YouTube has a live stream. We put it up there every night. And also, a backlog and an archive of programs um, about two years, well, a year and a half's worth of programs there now, about 300 shows, uh, all there for your listening and viewing enjoyment. And uh, it's just J.V. Johnson on YouTube. You'll find all that. Subscribe to it. Click the bell icon so that you get, you get notifications when we go live with a stream or we upload new material. So the second hour of our show, by the way, the phone lines are open at 607-282-4497 if you'd like to join the conversation. In the second hour of our show, we'll be talking with Jay Dyer. He's an author, a philosopher, and a film analyst. And we're going to be talking about his book series book series called Esoteric Hollywood and the symbolism hidden in popular films. Jay, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. So, uh, first thing, how long have you been a film analyst? Been doing this a while? I would say uh, a budding film critic since high school. So, maybe <laughs> even before that. <laughs> so, yes, I've always been picking apart movies, making fun of movies, watching bad movies. And good movies, and uh, so it was. It was always in my blood. Are you like me that I'll go seek out a bad movie before I'll spend the time to watch a good movie? Sometimes you know, I feel like I've, I've seen everything good, and now I'm on all the bad movies. So absolutely, yeah. <laughs> when when you say you you make fun of movies and uh, you you kind of pick them apart, is there any particular genre of film you like to go to most? Well, I do. I do enjoy bad horror movies. Uh-huh. Uh, I enjoy B movies of all flavors. I enjoy uh, campy movies. Uh, pretty much all over the board. I mean, there's, uh, you know, it's. I have a wide eclectic taste for bad movies, no doubt. But, and I've actually been incorporating a little, a little bit more of that into my stuff recently. In fact, in the second book, I, I included a few uh, B movies just for fun to kind of throw those in into the mix. All right, so let's talk about the book series, Esoteric Hollywood. What is what, what are we talking about when we talk about esoteric? Well, esoteric just means hidden. So we're talking about stuff that's not necessarily in plain sight, uh, although sometimes things are hidden in plain sight. Um, most of the time when we think of that word, we just mean something that's occulted or secret, uh, below the surface, subtle, kind of encrypted. And so what I did was I went to college and I studied film, and philosophy, and I decided to write a couple books on that. And so I basically talk about symbolism in film. It's not just decoding symbols. There's a lot of other layers that you can look into. I, I talk about Hollywood history a lot. I talk about, uh, you know, the mafia and, and their relationship to Hollywood and history. Um, I talk about different cults and secret societies and how they related to uh, the film industry in the background and how all of that kind of goes into one big blender mix that becomes the film that you watch. As you st- were starting to study this, compile this type of information, were you surprised at the amount of uh, material was there, the number of things that are maybe in our films that we're watching or mm-hmm. television shows that we're seeing or even uh, some of the music that we're listening to that uh, falls into this category? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think... One of the films that really stuck with me back when I was in high school, um, I remember when 
uh, Mel Gibson, the Dick Donner film Conspiracy Theory with, with Mel Gibson. When that came out, I kind of had a sense of conspiracy theories. I was a senior in high school at the time, but I remember when it came out, I thought, you know what? It's almost like maybe Hollywood is telling us something about conspiracies themselves. And so it kind of planted a seed in my mind that would later kind of grow into what the books became. But I'd say ever since then, it, 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 the seed was planted. But then when I went to study it in a more academic way, I was absolutely blown away. I never would have dreamt the rabbit hole that, that Hollywood and film can be. And, you know, the last 10 years of my life have really been kind of devoted to that. Are they putting these things into our popular uh, entertainment options intentionally, or do they end up there in, in somewhat of a, an accidental fashion? It's all the above. So I think sometimes you've got people who say are producers, directors, writers, screenplay, you know, um, cinematographers, art direction. They're, they're all maybe putting their, having their input. Maybe somebody has a specific intention of putting something there that not everybody else does. And then I think at times um, certain films can completely be uh, viewed in a kind of a cult or ritualistic way. It just kind of depends on whether it's a big blockbuster that, that's going to be uh, useful for a lot of propaganda or whether it's a kind of a weird art house film um, you know, that, that has eccentric directors and producers or, or who knows. I mean, there's all the above that, that could be involved and are involved. Are these filmmakers, are these producers, are these studios trying to in some way um, influence us, convert us, yeah. scare us? What's the objective? Again, I, I don't mean to be too big, but it's all the above. So, for example, we can go back to the way government has used film all the way back to the time of uh, Hell's Angels with somebody like... Um, um, Oh, I just I just something like uh, the Aviator that the the, the, the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio character is playing. Uh, uh, Was that uh, Howard Hughes? Howard Hughes. I'm yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm like uh, yeah. So we go back to Howard Hughes in the twenties, and he's making you know essentially the blockbusters of his days, which were his giant propaganda films, and that was more or less uh, in line with what uh, the government at that time wanted. Um, other countries have had their own governments produce propaganda films, the Soviet Union did, which I discussed a couple chapters. So on one level, you could look at it like, if you think about the power of film, you can see how how governments would use that for propaganda. And then on another layer, you can have, um, I, I argue, for example, that directors like David Lynch or Stanley Kubrick were more specifically interested in deeper philosophical uh, perspectives that they that they did want to inculcate people into or initiate people into. I think that um, Darren Aronofsky, you know, these are these are filmmakers who consciously uh, use uh, ritual and, and, and occult-type ideas in the film specifically, but at other times it could just be more uh, of a, a, you know, government type of operation or propaganda type operation. Let's talk about government involvement for a minute here, because I think it comes as no surprise to most of us that some type of totalitarian regime, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. obviously they were had their fingers and their hands very deep into any type of uh, uh, entertainment product that was being created, film or otherwise. Uh, how, how far are the American government's fingers into Hollywood? Very deep. And that, that was one of the big things that really struck me was that I was constantly turning over new leaves, or new leaves, I should say, um, so I, when I did my grad work, I focused on um, Ian Fleming. And, and if you don't know, of course, Ian Fleming is the creator of uh, James, James Bond. Bond. Yeah. Um, and what really surprised me was the depth to which most of the Ian Fleming stories that he wrote were in part borrowed from his own escapades. Uh, now, obviously, not everything. A lot of it was fictionalized. And some of it was other people that he knew in British intelligence, but he was actually doing uh, naval psyops, basically, for uh, for British intelligence. And so when you're watching or reading Bond stories, you're seeing, in many ways, things that have a decent amount of reality to them. For example, villains like um, uh, Le Chiffre, uh, which stands for the, the, the cipher, which comes up in the Casino Royale, or villains like uh, Blofeld. They're actually based on uh, the, the characters of, of Aleister Crowley, the famous uh, British Satanist, who himself was co-opted into doing 
uh, MI5 asset work. So that's one example that kind of blew me away, and I thought there's so much here. Uh, and there's actually a whole field of research called bondology <laughs> wow. that that would be you know perfect for for delving into a master's thesis. And so that was just one element to where you see on the one hand government propaganda with wanting to use bond as a figure for Cold War propaganda um, and and you know, the, the the ideology of the West as opposed to the Soviets, uh, for example, Smirsch, which is a Soviet counterintelligence that comes up in the early Bond novels before it transitions into Spectre, the international terror organization. So I think uh, Ian Fleming is kind of showing us in fictional form that the Cold War would kind of transition into uh, an amorphous international war on terror. So that's one key example where um, Western intelligence had a had a crucial hand in film itself. And, of course, Bond, I think it was surpassed eventually by Harry Potter or something for being like the most well-known and most uh, uh, lucrative uh, franchises. But at least in, throughout the Cold War, the Bond series was, was the most well-known, iconic franchise. Does this... Uh principle apply just to film or are tv shows and tv series subject to the same type of influence oh it's definitely tv yeah. i mean it, there's there's not a big distinction there um i, I think that blockbusters are very key uh, for a lot of propaganda that's one of the, the things that i do focus on and argue and that was not any idea that I came up with. Uh, that was actually something that a lot of academics had, had actually already been writing on. Uh, there's a book called Operation Hollywood <clears throat> by a scholar named David Robb. There's a uh, woman called Tristan Jenkins, and she wrote a book called CIA in Hollywood. Those are both academic works that I stumbled upon when I was doing my research. And they really confirmed a lot of the stuff that I suspected. So you see examples of things like J.J. Uh, Abrams doing the show Alias, uh, with uh, Jennifer Garner, and then you see Jennifer Garner actually uh, doing PR work with the CIA. So um, you know, the CIA was consulting on that show, and, and that's not new to to films like, or excuse me, TV series like Alias. That actually goes back uh, uh, you know, pretty far. I even turned up examples of people like uh, Jimmy Stewart kind of doing <clears throat> uh, similar stuff back in the 60s with the FBI. He was actually doing um, you know FBI-type funded and, and, and promoted films. And a lot of those TV series that you see that we know from, you know, like even back to the Twilight Zone actually had the uh, Department of Defense consultation on it. So, so it goes, it's always been intertwined and it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the camera itself. We're going to go to break here in just a couple of minutes. Um, there's two volumes in your series. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And uh, do, is the second volume a continuation, just an additional series of stories, or how do, how do the two relate to one another? Yeah, well, basically the first one is I, I focused on four major, four or five major directors. And so I, I did uh, Kubrick in about 100 pages, uh, various Kubrick films. I did Spielberg in about 100 pages. I did uh, a bunch of 70s and 80s dystopian films, and then I did 007 and Hitchcock. So those kind of, that makes up the first 400-page book. And then the, the next book, um, I, instead of doing directors, I did it topically. I did uh, Hollywood, mobs, cults, spies, and the occult. And so there's about 15 films in that section. And then I did Hollywood Mind Control and MK Ultra, And then I did uh, Hollywood Geoengineering, which where they're talking about, you know, aliens, terraforming, this kind of stuff. And then the final section of the second book is Hollywood transhumanism, you know, what, what the future is going to bring. So that's how the books differ. Do you, do you recommend they be read in sequence, the first one first? Uh, they, they can be done completely independent. Um, they're just, uh, it's a lot of the same type of analysis. I have a very unique style of how I, it's kind of, I call it uh, kind of Roger Ebert on acid. <laughs> it's the way that I do movie analysis where I kind of, because Ebert's not bad. You know, he'll, he'll talk a lot about symbolism and, and things like this because he did, I think, an English degree. But in my approach, I bring in conspiracy. I bring in you know, the propaganda, the, the CIA. I bring in all those other elements on top of it. We're talking about his book series, Esoteric Hollywood. And I want to specifically go and talk about um, a couple of directors that we have right. actually heard come up on this program during other conversations. And the top of the list is going to be Stanley Kubrick. Um right. How does uh, Stanley Kubrick's work um, 
relate to this conversation. There are so many things about his work, whether it's The Shining, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, and, and, and other things that he's done that are central to a lot of conspiracy-type discussions. What did you find? I found all that to be true and more. <laughs> I found that um, I dug up some really fascinating quotes from Kubrick where he talks about um, presenting stories as modern-day fairy tales, about presenting surrealism, about um, his view of, of quote-unquote magic. Um, and I guess he kind of left things a little ambiguous so that we would debate what he meant by those quotes. Um, his production company, you know, being called Minotaur Films, and then Minotaur at times will come up, especially in The Shining with, the you know Jack Nixon character kind of being the Minotaur in right. the labyrinth, chasing around, uh, you know, terrorizing his family. Uh, so there's a lot of layers, there's a lot of a lot of scenes. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I, I focused on Eyes Wide Shut. I focused on The Shining, and I focused on 2001. Um, I have a, a different take than a lot of people on on all three of those, but. You know, the prevalent themes that we see are things like secret societies, the power elites. Um, we see things like human trafficking actually comes up pretty consistently in Kubrick films. We see uh, the idea of, you know, uh, underage type abuse situations. I don't want to get too graphic or anything, but, you know, that, that is a theme from Lolita to Barry London to uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, and even, uh, you know, the character, the, the, the kid in The Shining, there's, intimations that he has been abused by the Jack Nicholson character. So definitely dark themes, but they're, they're present in Kubrick. And I think that he's pretty clearly telling us the kind of stuff that we are now seeing in the news. You know, when we look at things like the Nexium cult, or when we see this Epstein story all in the news, you know, Kubrick was actually telling us this stuff in his films a long time ago. I want to talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey. You said you found something different. Um, when we've had uh, discussion about that particular film, it tends to relate to the discussion about the moon landings and the possible mm-hmm. involvement of Kubrick in uh, putting footage together that represented a landing that didn't happen. Is that what mm-hmm. you came across, or was it something else related to that film? Uh, no, actually, uh, and of course, uh, you know, Jay Widener is a big uh, proponent of that, and um, he and I did our TV show together. So we actually produced a full season of, of a TV show called Hollywood Decoded, um, which you can watch at Gaia. But um, I, that's that's the one uh, episode where we actually disagreed. <laughs> we did a Cisco Neighbors style TV show, and um, when it came to 2001, we, we kind of disagreed there because, of course, Jay does have that part of his thesis, um, which I'm not saying isn't necessarily true. Uh, I don't have any problem with it being possible that Kubrick was involved in that. Um, it's possible that he was telling us that in The Shining. Uh, my focus on The Shining is actually, or excuse me, on 2001 is actually uh, not that he's telling us about the moon landing. I know that's well, kind of relates to it The kind Shining. Of, but kind of, yeah, The Shining is... is yeah, right. right. That's, that's Room 237, and that's, that's uh, right. um, Jay Wiener's documentaries. Right. But um, particularly in 2001, uh, Jay has a very positive view of that as well, which I disagree with. I, I take it as more of a warning, um, a kind of a, a Luciferian or a cult idea of apotheosis. I think Cooper's trying to tell us that um, we can view AI as either a means to... Uh, achieving godhood, or it will be the end of the human race. Because, of course, the Hal character leads um, the, the Bowman character. Hal, the robot, uh, right. kind of leads Bowman towards this apotheosis, which in the original script, actually, Arthur C. Clarke had it that Starchild actually nukes the Earth <laughs> and starts over. So there's like a uh, total reset button, right? Game over and then reset. Um, which, again, they can be viewed as a warning, or it can be viewed as uh, something where we unite with the AI because actually in the 3001 by Clark, um, humanity unites with Bowman. So Hal and Bowman unite to become Halman and they become this kind of transhumanist entity that can uh, fly around in space or whatever. So point being is that 2001, um, I have a different view of it. I, I see it as a, a uh, view, I view it as a warning about uh, AI um, that we have to not fall into the trap of thinking that we can just, you know, merge with machines and and uh, uh, that it, you know that, that it's going to be some kind of Elon Musk style uh, utopia that will be created from from all the neural links and all this kind of stuff. Uh, that's how I view it. 
Uh, and obviously, uh, Kubrick's probably most, I would say, obvious uh, film that would be on your list would be Eyes Wide Shut. Was that an overt uh, telling of Hollywood secrets? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's essentially my thesis. I mean, I go into a lot more depth. I don't want to spoil everything. Sure. We're just saying, yeah, that's it. Um, but I, I think that it's pretty much full of codes. I mean, even to the point of Huber kind of telling us that uh, there's there's a very power, powerful secret society. The secret society is able to control um, the masses through their base desires. And so I think the Tom Cruise character kind of represents a guy who thinks he's at the top of the totem pole. You know, he's a successful doctor in New York. You know, he's married to uh, this, you know, woman who does some kind of art teaching or she teaches art or something like that. Uh, she's very beautiful. Uh, he's got it made. And then he realizes there's actually a, a level of people above him that have way more power, way more wealth and influence than he could have ever imagined. So it's kind of an opening, an eye-opening experience. Um, Bill Harper goes through a kind of initiatory journey, and he's led to the point where he has to essentially come to the end of himself and realize that you know he can either accept that the world is run this way uh, or he can keep his eyes wide shut. I think what Kubrick is really doing is casting in the audience. He's, he's kind of telling the audience, you and the audience actually have your, your eyes wide shut. You're not understanding that what I'm telling you in this film is how the real world works. That's how the world is really It's really run by very, very powerful rich people, uh, and they have a, they have a lot of influence. Uh, and, and what you think is a secret society, um, it actually runs more or less like an intelligence agency. Uh, if you if you pay attention to the way the cult operates, um, they pretty much have the the all the means of, at their disposal that, that an intelligence agency has. They have the ability to fake deaths. They have the ability to have people put to death. They have the ability to surveil people. You know all the kinds of things that the CIA can do or something like that uh, is essentially what this cult is able to do. Somebody in our chat room brought up a film that uh, when I read this particular question, it really struck me as something we should talk about, and that's uh, Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Did you take a look mm-hmm. at that one? Um, obviously, when people think of a cult, frequently they think of satanic-type messages. Right. And, and obviously, if you haven't seen Rosemary ba- Rosemary's Baby, spoiler alert here, there's a satanic theme. Um, right. Did you look at Rosemary's Baby? Well, you know, the funny thing is that I uh, wrote the the script for an entire episode of Hollywood Decoded on Rosemary's Baby, oh, wow. and the, the network actually, uh, they cut that one. <laughs> they, oh, decided it was too dark. they said it was too dark. Oh, so, I can see how uh, it Somewhere would be. there's a whole episode of the show that we did that is the Rosemary's Baby. We went, we went really deep into analyzing it, um, but I didn't, so no, that one actually did not make it into the book, but I did do Ninth Gate, which Roman Polanski also did. So, it, you know, it has exactly the same things, themes. And I'm not trying to shift away from Rosemary's Baby. I can definitely talk about that. But um, one thing I do want to say in relationship to Eyes Wide Shut is that uh, Ninth Gate came out right around the same time uh, as Eyes Wide Shut. And it has really striking parallels to Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. So I think, you know, with Polanski being present, you know, all the way back to the Manson stuff. Um, you know, I, I think Polanski was telling us something, too, just like Kubrick was. Um, and Rosemary's Baby is is saying the same types of stuff that he is telling us what Kubrick is saying, and that's hence why, many decades later, just like Kubrick, he would write at the same time as Eyes Watch Up put out a movie, Night Gate, with all the same types of themes. When we talk about satanic themes in films, is there another one that comes to mind that you did some work on that um, we might not be so obvious? Maybe the theme, maybe the themes are a little bit more hidden or subvert, but uh, that are there anyway. Yes, uh, I would say you. Well, there's quite a few, but definitely David Lynch films. I mean, David Lynch um, clearly puts the ritual magic, the occult. Uh, the demonic, uh, the satanic, into books, uh, whether it's Twin Peaks or whether it's Wild at Heart or whether it's uh, even Blue Velvet, uh, uh, you know, Lost Highway, Long Drive. It's all. It's always in a Lynch film. Definitely, um, he's he's a key person uh, that I put into uh, well, into I... the analyses. So, 
When you say, uh, he when comes to mind, uh, Darren Aronofsky, I mentioned earlier, is somebody who would, would consciously put the kind of ritual element into the film. When you say David Lynch, and, and I think about uh, messages along these lines, I immediately think of Eraserhead. Yes, you know, that's funny because most people skip over Eraserhead. Um, it's not my favorite David Lynch film. I know it's important, uh, and, and certainly later Lynch films refer back to it. Right. Um, I just find it, I find it very, <laughs> very difficult to watch. I know it can be difficult. Right now, but... I have to watch it in, like, shifts. I have to, can't watch yeah, it all in one right. sitting. But I love it, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great film, there's, there's no doubt. It's just, it's just bizarre. It's so bizarre. It is, yeah. And, you know, he, like most people who, you know, want their artworks to be debated, he'll kind of leave these hands about, oh, you know, I was I was nervous about having a child and this kind of creature represents, you know, my fears of having a baby and this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, and then fast forward all the way to the most recent season of Twin Peaks and he's he's even throwing in references in season three of Twin Peaks all the way back to Eraserhead. So uh, you know, he, he has the same idea of you know playing with nonlinear time um, that 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 film is a ritual film is a writing of a script in a way and then it taps into these these nonlinear spiritual realms I mean in fact there, there's several interviews where David Lynch actually brings this to the fore and he says you know the big part of the reason that I do transcendental meditation is because I feel like I'm kind of meditating and going into this this other realm, the in between, as it's called. Uh, uh, you know, he, he, you know, fire walk with me is actually kind of referencing this this, this idea of the shaman, the director, as a shamanic uh, traveler who's going into this, this spiritual realm and then bringing back the messages of the spiritual realm. If you had to give uh, our audience a um, challenge to to w- watch a film and, and pick out something they might not have seen that uh, you, you think fits into this particular category. Do you have something that comes to mind? Yeah, one of the first uh, analyses that I did that really stuck out to me and kind of got the ball rolling for me was Blade Runner. I would say if you go back and watch Blade Runner, uh, pretty much every time I've watched Blade Runner since I was a kid, you know, countless times, probably 30 times since since I was you know, seven or eight, <laughs> the first time I watched it. Um, I always noticed something new in Blade Runner. And that, I think, is a testament to, well, I mean, obviously it's a testament to, you know, the, the creativity of Philip K. Dick, who is hanging out with the Silicon Valley people and kind of getting, you know, ideas and information from, from the inner Silicon Valley elite. But it's also a testament to the, at least the early genius of Ridley Scott, <laughs> the, uh, because later films have lacked that that sort of creative spark of the early uh, Ridley Scott, but uh, there's no doubt that you know Blade Runner, you know, kind of creepy elements of that, even you know, especially with the recent death of uh, Rutger Hauer uh, playing the, the right. Roy Batty character. But um, yeah, I would say if you pay attention to the the imagery in the background, uh, which a lot of times people miss. But, but you will start to notice um, pentagrams. You'll start to notice double-headed eagles. You'll start to notice, uh, you know, conscious Masonic imagery, this kind of stuff coming up in Blade Runner. Um, the reference to the William Blake poem uh, that Roy Batty recites, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, and it took me many viewings before, you know, I really caught a lot of those, those clues. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left. Your website, jaysanalysis.com. It's more more than what we're just talking about there. There's a lot of stuff. What's the website about? What can people find? Yeah, actually, I have, I think, uh, about 900, 1,000 articles that I've written over the last decade, um, everything from philosophy to metaphysics to the esoteric to uh, religion, comparative religion, and then, you know, it, it, it's all over the place. Uh, and then I have a subscription service where people can, Subscribe to get like the part two of everything. So I do a half and half thing where there's a paywall, and then you get the full lectures and talks and interviews uh, in in the subscriber section. And then if you buy the book from the website, uh, you get signed copies. So uh, that's kind of a, a pro as opposed to getting it on Amazon, which doesn't really benefit authors very much. So to get it from me, I have a shop there at the website, um, and then you know there's there's countless uh, free essays that you can read going back ten years. Anything else that you want to let folks know about how they can follow your work? Uh, yeah, I have a, a pretty popular YouTube channel, um, and I, I upload stuff, live streams, uh, comedy skits, 
um, movie analyses, interviews, pretty much every day or two to the YouTube channel. So you can just uh, look up Jay Dyer on YouTube and you'll sit there and then you can find me on, you know, just type in Jay Dyer on Twitter and I'll come up. Jay, this is a great discussion and we'd love to have you back and maybe uh, spend a full show chatting about this. Yeah, no, it'd be great. Anytime. All right. So once again, the website is jaysanalysis.com. Thanks again for being here, Jay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Very fascinating conversation, though, especially about um, um, uh, the occult and uh, esoteric messages in film, television, song. You know, this theme, uh, Orion, comes up uh, a lot. People talk about particularly satanic messages in our pop culture. Sure. I never know if it's completely intentional. You mean on the part of the creator? Right. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, certainly, you know, in the 80s uh, hair metal days, people, they were definitely trying to shock someone. Uh, Yeah, there was a shock factor for a while. Right. But this other more insidious stuff, I'm not sure. Yeah. Some great films we talked about tonight, though. Yeah, one you missed. uh, One of my favorites, Chinatown, another Polanski film. That's right. Which is full of symbolism and you you can watch that a dozen times and still find new things i think yeah polanski uh i don't know obviously his legal trouble uh put a dark cloud over his career but really really amazing film maker as mm-hmm. as, as as kubrick i'm i'm every day i i learn more things that i love about stanley kubrick's films mm-hmm. great stuff yeah. all right um tomorrow night we we are going to be talking about what here orion we've got john, john zeta on his mm-hmm. book is called in the valley of the noble beyond in search of the sasquatch He's a journalist, so he's got kind of a different angle. Uh, he's not so much a researcher. Uh, he he just wanted to um, see what he could see firsthand and interview um, people who um, who uh, whose culture. Um, what am I trying to say? They. Uh, I have no idea what you're trying to say. <laughs> trying to say he interviews uh, like uh, indigenous people and uh, people who have a long history of um, talking about the Sasquatch as a part of their cultural heritage. That's tomorrow night's program right here on Beyond Reality Radio. Take care. We'll see you. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.